Hello and welcome to Versus, the podcast that finally settles the little debates that are always a big deal to someone. I'm Coco Khan and this week our someones are Will Hodgkinson and Jack Pelling, two music fans whose top pop table is reserved for Mr Jagger, Richards, Lennon and McCartney and a few plus ones. Will Hodgkinson is a journalist and author who is chief rock and pop critic for The Times. If Will hasn't met a rock and roll great, they might not really be that great. Neil Young, Iggy Pop and a certain Keith Richards have all spent time telling their stories to Will. Joining Will is Jack Pelling. Jack is co-host of Beatles podcast Your Own Personal Beatles and one of the team behind the show Taskmaster. If you haven't been on Jack's podcast, are you even a Beatles fan? Adam Buxton, John Ronson, Nish Kumar and more have joined Jack to talk about their love of the Fab Four. Because today we're settling the big one, the original music rivalry. It's the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones. It's Lennon McCartney. That's a once in a millennia thing. No one will ever come close. Those songs are timeless. You know, I can't think of many Stones masterpieces that will still be around in a few hundred years. The Beatles were doing you know, this would have been the time of Eight Days a Week, Love Me Do, you know, fairly, you know, very good, but very straightforward songs. And it wasn't long before the Stones were doing Paint It Black, 19th Nervous Breakdown, and Mother's Little Helper, about housewives taking prescription drugs. You know, all of these subjects, which were kind of often quite complex and difficult. But remember, which band comes out on top is up to you, the listeners. After each episode drops, we open up the polls for you to vote on our website. We'll announce the winner in next week's episode. Last week, we invited journalists Sophia Smith-Gayler and Aina Khan to debate two social media giants, TikTok versus Twitter. And with a week of voting gone by, the winner is TikTok. Well done to Sophia Smith-Gayler. Now back to this week's debate, the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones. Two bands, two legendary acts making music at the big bang of modern pop. And quite remarkably, one of them is still doing so. But before we get into it, let's crunch some facts. It's time now for Coco's Crunch. So, the Beatles, the Fab Four, John, Paul, George and Ringo. Formed in Liverpool in 1960, the band are perceived by many to be the bedrock of modern pop music, creating classic rock and roll, sugary folk pop genius, psychedelic freakouts. They're even credited with inventing heavy metal on Paul McCartney's screeching Helter Skelter. In just seven years of recording, they changed the face of music forever. But around the same time, a bunch of slightly more unkempt bohemians were forming in South London. The Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Charlie Watts and a revolving door of players shaping their blues-influenced sound built an early reputation on being the bad boys of rock and roll, flirting with ideas of Satanism, being involved in drug busts and just generally embracing the darker side of 60s hedonism. The Stones have since grown into and indeed are basically the blueprint for stadium rock shows. Six years on from their first gig, they're still going. Plot twist, in early 2023, rumours of the somewhat unthinkable happened. The potential of a Beatles-Rolling Stones collab. Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr are reportedly involved in an as-yet unannounced Rolling Stones album. Will they all finally let it be? Coco's Crunch. So it's time now for opening arguments. Jack, let's start with you. Why are the Beatles the better band over the Rolling Stones? Well, I think you kind of alluded to it there in that they blew the doors open and kind of invented pop as we know it, really. And, you know, I should sort of caveat by saying that I'm a big fan of the Stones as well. But when it sort of comes to this argument, I feel like it kind of exists because when you have such an explosive kind of cultural phenomenon, 
the way that we make sense of these things is to try and find some kind of yardstick with which to measure them. And I don't know if it has done the Stones that many favours over the years, but for me, musically, most importantly, they just completely changed the game. They never stopped evolving. The story and the mythos of what the Beatles are is just hasn't been repeated since. It's very hard to see how it's ever going to be in the way that the industry has sort of changed over the years. They were funny. They were endlessly creative. The characters were kind of archetypal in the way that they complemented each other and rubbed each other up the wrong way. And I think as much as I, I like the Stones and lots of other bands that get sort of grouped in together in that 1960 thing, I guess saying you prefer the Stones to the Beatles for me is a bit like saying you prefer toast to bread because without one, there is not the other. So, you know, they started it, they perfected it. And I think it was probably in a lot of ways good that it sort of was bookended and, and had a finish. And that story is sort of put to bed. And now we can see how their legacy has evolved over the subsequent half a century, which I guess the Stones will be reevaluated in that way, but not for a while. Okay, so Will, let's bring you in here. I'm sure you heard what Jack said there and thought, hang on, what do you mean? They started it, they finished it, the Stones are still going. So why are they the world's greatest rock and roll band? Well, first of all, I should say I absolutely love the Beatles. I mean, what amazing childlike wonderment. But what about the rest of your life as an adult? You know, and I, so I think with the with the Stones, uh, yes, uh, I Want to Be Your Man was written by Lennon and McCartney and that was their first big hit. But the Stones took, if you call it rock and roll or being in a band, whatever it is, into so many different places. I felt they kind of captured, and it's very hard for me to say this in a way because I love the Beatles so much, but they captured kind of more unpleasant realities, deeper realities, more troubling things, uh, also incredibly exciting. I don't, I can't think of, even as much as I love the Beatles, I can't think of a song as exciting as Jumping Jack Flash. It's just like pure excitement and deviltry and, you know, it's all rolled in there in three, three, you know, just over three minutes. And the Stones, of course, yeah, the Beatles, if you think, okay, so the Beatles started in 60, but I would say arguably they really started making brilliant albums with help in 65. You've only got five years before they split. The Stones, okay, maybe not always brilliant albums, but you go right up to, say, I'd say Some Girls, that was 78. So if you've got 63 to 78 of, you know, making making some pretty good records, things expand with The Stones. It's definitely messier. It's probably more unpleasant. Certainly a hell of a lot of drugs and, uh, you know, unpleasant behaviour involved. But they're endlessly fascinating. It just doesn't stop. And... I kind of think they have better haircuts. <laughs> Jack, let's bring you into this. I was interested because Will was talking about the first albums in the early years. Now, I'm going to say something controversial. First few albums of the Beatles, not very good, are they? I think that's a controversial opinion. <laughs> um, but certainly they didn't start to really push things until, yeah, 1964, next 65. But the Beatles did have a bit of a, a head start on the Stones and you can kind of see that for the entire period where they were contemporary. Every time the Beatles did something, the Stones folded it up with basically the same thing. And sometimes you could go as far as to say that they were sort of pale imitations and it didn't really suit the Stones. Um, if you think, you know, the post-Sergeant Pepper kind of Satanic Majesty's era is often cited as them sort of trying to play catch up. And I think for me, the, the Stones stuff that I really like is actually after the Beatles are done. 
and the post Brian Jones period where the Stones kind of step out of the shadow of the Beatles a bit and they kind of become, you know, fully formed, in my opinion, within the sort of more solely influenced muscle shoalsy sticky fingers period. So I think the Beatles journey being such a short time, what it's so incredible about them, you know, what they achieved in that run of seven years is absolutely extraordinary and hasn't been repeated. And I think actually it might have even been detrimental to the Stones. And I think they were probably a bit annoyed that the Beatles didn't really see them as rivals in the way that they saw Dylan or the Beach Boys. You know, for them, they were just the blues band that every now and then would try and copy one of their records. And if you look, you only have to look at the covers to see how true that is. Well, I mean, surely there's a difference between doing it first and doing it best, right, Will? Well, I'm going to have to take a little bit of an issue with what Jack said then, of course. I would not be so ridiculous as to suggest that Their Satanic Majesty's Request is a better album than Sgt Pepper. But I don't think it's the travesty that people make out. I mean, John Lennon famously said, you know, we do all all you need is love. And then they come along with We Love You. It's just ridiculous. Actually, Listen to We Love You is a totally different song. It's about them going to jail. You know, and it's a very uh, sarcastic and cynical riposte to, you know, sort of fairly trumped up drug charges that happened and or, or certainly being uh, made scapegoats of the whole drugs culture. So that again, you know, that was a kind of a way in which although the Beatles were doing all this stuff, the Stones were taking it in their own way. And also they're taking it into aspects of a wider society. Of course, the Beatles were too, but the Beatles essentially had to stop touring in 1966. That's very, very early, just because of their vast popularity, it was just not possible. But the Stones, have, they were, although obviously very successful, they were so much more volatile that they were still always out in the world. And, you know, they were, the you know, Sergeant Pilcher and, uh, you know, the police force were not going to go after the Beatles. They were kind of untouchable. In fact, they famously waited for George Harrison to leave before the Redlands bus because he was at Keith Richards' house that day. So I think the Stones... Uh, were kind of up against more. It made them more resilient. It gave them more to write about. And also, if you look at those early, that kind of 64, well, going into 65 period, you know, you look at some of the Stones songs and the Beatles were doing, you know, this would have been the time of Eight Days a Week, Love Me Do, you know, fairly, you know, very good, but very straightforward songs. And it wasn't long before the Stones were doing Paint It Black, Time Is On My Side, It's All Over Now, 19th Nervous Breakdown. I mean, songs that were really taking on a mother's little helper, you know, about, um, you know, housewives taking prescription drugs, you know, all of these subjects, which are kind of often quite complex and difficult. So yes, the argument has always been that the Stones are playing catch up. I can see the argument and there's definitely some truth in it, but I'd say whenever they, you know, took whatever the Beatles did, they went in wildly different directions. I mean, even 2000 Light Years From Home, which was, you know, their psychedelic riposte, I suppose, to to the Sgt. Pepper era, is such an incredibly cosmic song. It's just absolutely brilliant. So I think the Stones could not be seen as a pale imitation of the Beatles. Jack, I wanted to ask you, because sometimes in this debate, the Stones are characterised as being the sort of broody, moody, dark band, and the Beatles are just like this pop, smiley, sunny gang. Is that actually a fair characterisation of them? I think that's certainly true to why they became so popular pretty early on because they were sort of nice boys um, and they interviewed brilliantly and they were easy to you know write into films because they're so the sort of four cornerstones of the band fitted very easily into this kind of like elemental quad of this the four-headed monster as Mick Jagger used to refer to them as. Um, I think obviously towards the end of the 60s they become a, a little bit more grisly 
But that coupled with Paul McCartney's sort of unashamed love of sort of melody, you know, over anything that could be considered sort of proto-punk in like the kind of Stones are in a way, makes them a little bit more cuddly and they were a little bit more prone to verge on the edge of sort of naffness, which McCartney goes on to explore a bit more in his solo stuff. Um, so they are, they're more approachable, they're more cuddly, they're more the kids you, you know, the cliches, the kids that you would in, uh, introduce to your parents or whatever. But there's also, I think in that, there's a lot of humour with them that I think is kind of lacking in the Stones. The Stones are a little bit more arch and take themselves a little bit more seriously. I always thought when you were growing up as a musician, the Stones were kind of the band that wanted you, made you want to be in a band. And the Beatles were the band that made you want to play music and write songs and be in a band, but more of a kind of like shared collective experience because um, there's less sort of turmoil. And I personally kind of think that that's a good thing in a better kind of creative environment. And when you watch, you know, footage of them in the studio, whether it's sort of at the frostier end of the 60s in, you know, the recent Peter Jackson stuff, you know, what compared to watching that pristine footage of Sympathy for the Devil, it's a very, very different creative process and the closeness of the Beatles and their sort of intimacy with each other in the way that they were with how they received is kind of key to the way that they were understood and were able to get so massive. So, yeah, it's it's definitely there's a lot of truth to it, but I would say it's positive. We'll be back after this. I mean, the argument that the Stones are essentially a copy of the Beatles can't make sense because when the Beatles finished, the Stones were still going and making some pretty big songs. I was just doing some research beforehand and, you know, a classic song, I Know It's Only Rock and Roll or Miss You or even Start Me Up, that all came after the Beatles breakup. So, you know, they were still going. I wonder, Will, what you think about this idea that the Stones take themselves too seriously. They only do dark and moody. You know, you there is some optimism with them, right? You can have some optimism. You can also have some fun. I mean, there was... So my favourite Stones album is probably uh, Beggar's Banquet. So that was when the Beatles were still around. That was 68. And you've got a song like Dear Doctor on that album, which is a kind of parody of country music. Later on, the Stones really embraced country music. And, you know, and you hear it more on... I suppose even on a song like, um, you know, the Muscle Shoals period, you know, by, by a couple of years later. But... Yeah, so I know I think they had a sense of humour and buried in there somewhere amongst all that cynicism. Yeah, I'd say that my favourite albums are probably Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed. But then after the Beatles had split, you had um, some absolutely incredible albums. You had uh, Exile on Main Street, which is the ultimate kind of stonesy masterpiece and very, very loose. And that's when, in a way, we're kind of the comparisons don't even make sense anymore because that's when they really became themselves. But yeah, I mean, I think also I would say the Beatles, deeply musical, quite complex. They're quite difficult songs to actually learn to play on guitar if you want to do that. Stones often isn't too hard. And that's a good thing, I think. Because, you know, if you're a kid and you're trying to learn how to play, you know, kind of Keith Richards riff, as once you get the tuning right, it's not too hard. And that's incredibly exciting. So there's a certain accessibility to the Stones, even though they might be up there on some stadium stage. There's, I always felt that too. You know, I always kind of felt that they were a great band to kind of fantasize about, you know, being like a, the sixth member of. 
<laughs> yeah, there's an element of that too. You know, so I found with the Stones that the entire world of the Stones is very attractive. With the Beatles, obviously, they were very glamorous figures. They were fascinating. You know, Paul McCartney was going to, you know, exciting art galleries in 1965 and 66, really ahead of the curve with the avant-garde. But I felt with the Stones, they kind of, they embodied an entire universe, not necessarily always a pleasant one, but a fascinating one. Well, you were talking about stadiums there, and I wanted to talk to Jack about that briefly, the live experience. I mean, how did the Beatles shape up against Mick Jagger live? Well, I mean, in one way, it's pretty unfair to kind of put them side by side with what we know about what the Stones became and and still are, in that when the Beatles did their last set of gigs, you know, they were playing through a tinny PA system because the equipment and the infrastructure just did not exist to be able to do that, that kind of touring. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue that they would put on as much of a show as the Stones are famous for. That's what they do. That's their thing. Um, I do think that especially, you know, you talk about those early records, but part of why the Beatles were so good is because they cut their teeth as a fantastic band. And I actually, I love those, um, that early stuff and how tight they are. And I think that they were a fantastic live band when they were a live band, but it just sort of came impossible for them to be so. But then, you know, you mentioned I Want to Be Your Man earlier. And I think if you listen to those two different versions, that the one that the Beatles recorded and played live with Ringo, they're two very different approaches that sort of sum up the kind of different styles. And the Beatles version is a lot more kind of harmonic. And, you know, it's the same song, but it's also not kind of the same song. And Paul's like pristine tenor vocals on it are just very, very unstonesy. And, you know, we know that Paul went on to be an incredible live performer. John sadly didn't really do too much of it. But, you know, had they broken up in 1972 instead of 1970 and done one more big tour, who knows? I mean, we had the rooftop and it's hard to argue that's not a pretty special live performance. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue that they're sort of comparable as a live act as we know them today. Also, Will, didn't you get an actual guitar lesson from Keith Richards? Well, kind of, yeah, (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) I did a book called Guitar Man years ago, and I got an opportunity to interview Keith Richards just as a, you know, he was for The Guardian, who I was then working for. And obviously I was kind of starstruck, inevitably, but also, and this was a measure of how great he was, very, very quickly, he was he was totally disarming. So this is somebody who I've, records I've grown up with all my life. Obviously, I was nervous, you know, I, had, I looked up to this person and instantly, very, very friendly, very easygoing. And it kind of gave me the, some, a few tips as to, you know, how he, how he did the, the great ones. And so, yeah, he, I, kind of, I guess I did get a guitar lesson from him. Which was obviously wonderful, and uh, yeah, yeah. No, I was I was going to say because having that experience close up with him, you know, we always talk about someone having stage presence. Some people just have it, don't they? And I guess you can confirm he had it. Oh my god! I mean, Mick Jagger is the one I still never met, and you know, I'd absolutely love to. But yes, I met. I mean, I, I one way or another, I've interviewed all the other Stones, Ronnie Wood and Charlie Watts before he died, Bill Wyman and Keith Richards. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know, when you get to meet them, of course, they're just people, you know, they're people who happen to have been incredibly famous for a very, very long period of time. So yeah, no, I mean, that's the other thing is that there, there is a world which goes with the music. And that's something that the Stones have always been very good at. I mean, you know, I mentioned Beggar's Banquet earlier on when I was a kid, I remember opening up the gatefold sleeve of Beggar's Banquet and it's it's got 
all of the stones lying around this hotel room in, well, there's a sort of uh, hotel restaurant in Kensington. And it looks like the most decadent medieval banquet you've ever seen. They're all kind of lying there. There's stuff everywhere. And you're sure there's probably some opium involved and all that kind of thing. You know, it's that kind of image. And I thought, oh, my God, I want to be there. I mean, I prob- you know, in reality, it probably would have been awful and I'm quite clean, li- clean living. But, you know, <laughs> the image it conveyed was so exciting. And that extends to Mick, the way Mick Jagger is on stage, the way the way he dances, the clothes. You know, I thought they had great style, um, especially in the '60s when you had, you know, they would go to a shop called Granny Takes a Trip on the King's Road, um, Aussie Clark, uh, Mr. Fish. You know, the big designers of the time. They always seemed to wear it very well. So that was all part of it. And the Beatles, as much as I love them, they didn't have that same allure for me. Um, you know, the, the Stones felt like a gang, a very dysfunctional gang who probably hated each other, but at the same time, a kind of gang you somehow wanted to join, even though the reality is you didn't. Yeah, it's better to be a fan, but you know what I mean? It's it, To me, that, that, that all of that is what makes them such an exciting rock and roll band. So interesting to hear you talk about their sex repeal. No, honestly, like their relationship to fashion. Uh, when you were talking there, I was just thinking about Harry Styles and how much he probably owes to people like the Stones. And even that kind of androgynous style that seems so avant-garde, it's very popular at the moment today in pop. I think you can see the legacy there. But also, while you were talking, I was thinking about how did Jack get into the Beatles? Because I'm looking at you, Jack, and you are not old enough to have been there at the time. (laughs) Well, what I kind of love about them is that they're just a constant in so many people's lives because they kind of transcend time and generations and they're still kind of as popular now as they were in 1970. And I got into them through my parents' kind of record collection, really. They had a lot of Stones records too, but the Beatles ones were the ones that changed my life. And that's kind of what our podcast is all about, really. It's about that shared history that you have and your own per- like sort of personal relationship with that music and how it influences you and it sticks with you. And it's just sort of, it feels like home, you know, in covid i listen to so much beatles because it's just like it's my youth you know it makes me feel sort of warm and cozy and the fact that they're also the most popular band that have ever existed means that there's a lot of people who feel that way too so i think yeah that thing of being there is not really that important with them because everyone remembers the order that they got the albums in and what format they were on whether that's you know the day that they went onto itunes or you raiding your, you know, dad's LP collection like I did in the 80s. Yeah, no, yeah, I know what you mean. It does feel like everyone has a, has a Beatles memory. Mine was my mum. She used to drive around this old banger. She had her greatest hits of the Beatles that was in the cassette player. And then the cassette player broke. So it was the only thing we could listen to driving around. So it's linked to just so many memories I have of going places and, and family. And I, I don't know if any other band can compare to... <laughs> that amount of memories that people have. So now the problem I have is that I don't have much more of your time and I really want to throw this grenade at both of you. <laughs> so you know how before we started recording, I said that I'd mentioned this debate to some of my mates and they all piled in on the WhatsApp <laughs> with their angry takes. One of them says, how comes the Rolling Stones put on American accents? That's how you know they're pretenders. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's just ridiculous. You know, pretending what? You know, they, they took American music. Well, because the Beatles sung more in their accents, didn't they? Their own Scouse accents. I didn't, I didn't necessarily always hear Liverpudlian accents on all those Beatles songs. Um, I certainly didn't hear it on, uh, you know, I don't know, Love Me Do or, you know, um, Please Please Me. But, um, well, I mean, first of all, I kind of disagree 
because I think it's Mick Jagger's American accent, which doesn't sound like any American. It's like it's just its own Mick Jagger-esque. You know, what can you call it? And actually, when you hear Keith Richards, he doesn't necessarily do that. If you hear You Got the Silver, which is uh, one of one of the you know, fan favourites from the from Let It Bleed. You know, that's a, that's a Richard song. He doesn't he doesn't really sing in an American accent. But, you know, they were deep lovers of the blues. Everything they did was the blues. You know, it's based on Slim Harpo records and Muddy Waters records and all that. And that's all black American music. That's everything they're into. It's the blues, soul, uh, country music to an extent, funk later on and, you know, on some girls. It was all American music. And what they did essentially was take that all and then, you know, uh, I mean, that's what the Americans got annoyed with, you know, sold it back to them. But for me, I think Mick Jagger turned it into something so completely different and so Mick Jaggerish, old rubber lips, that um, I'd, I'd just say no. That's not a sign of fakery. That's a sign of genius. Oh, I love that. That's great. So we are now at the time of closing pitches. Sadly, we're at the end of the long and winding road, but it's not me who gets to decide the winner. That'll be you, our listeners. Jack, before we throw this out to the masses, one more time to persuade them why John, Paul, George, Ringo and, well, Jack have taken this one. Well, I think the key thing for me is, you know, it's Lennon-McCartney. That's a, a once-in-a-millennia thing. No one will ever come close to how immaculate and productive that relationship was when it worked. Those songs are timeless. You know, I can't think of many Stones masterpieces that will still be around in a few hundred years. I don't think that they have a Strawberry Fields or a Hey Jude or a yesterday, you know, they're songs that could exist in the songbook in any era. And to have two sort of writers who could exist in the pantheon of great writers in the same band is essentially what the magic of the Beatles is. And then throwing in two other exceptional players and three amazing singers, incredible vocal harmonies, what they did in the studio changed music forever, what they did in sort of mass media changed society forever. You know, it's the biggest explosion of like cultural change in the last couple of hundred years and I think there's a reason for that it was just a lot of uh, coincidences and a lot of right place right time but um, I don't think that anyone can sort of touch them in the way that they've you know four working class kids can change the world like that I don't think it will happen again certainly not in our lifetimes. And Will, you know, you can't always get what you want, but if you win this, you might get what you need. Last chance to take it for the Stones. Just listen to Jumping Jack Flash if you if you want to feel good about being alive, and you will. And I would say the Stones do have a huge amount of incredible songs. You can't always get what you want. You just mentioned Angie, Wild Horses. These will be songs that will be listened to in hundreds of years' time. Uh, 2000 Light Years From Home is basically the Stones saying when their records will still be available in the shops. And I would say also nothing makes life seem more exciting than the entire Stones world, which continued the Beatles through, you know, circumstances well beyond their control had to split up. The Stones are still with us. And so they have expanded across the universe to borrow a Beatles track and, um, and continue to do so. And so I think, yes, in terms of the greatest rock and roll band in the world, it's the Stones. Well, thank you, Will Hodgkinson. And thank you, Jack Pelling. We will have to leave it there. One more reminder to you, our listeners, you decide. 
If you want to vote on whether the Beatles or the Rolling Stones won this battle, then go to intelligencesquared.com or click the link in the podcast description to cast your vote. The poll is open and the winner will be announced in next week's episode. We would also love to hear from you on what topics we should debate next. Email any suggestions to versus at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2. You've been listening to Versus, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. I'm your host, Coco Khan. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Hall. The executive producer was Farah Jassat. And thank you for listening. Listening.